You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator making a hurricane preparedness kit. Happy hurricane season, y'all. And I'm Jenna Bernstein, an orthopedic surgeon with Connecticut Orthopedics, where all we have gotten out of living in the insurance capital of America is more prior offs. And I'm Peter Golds. I'm a private practice surgeon at Panorama Orthopedics in Denver, Colorado, home to the Denver Nuggets. And hopefully after this podcast airs, they will be the next champions of the NBA. I'm Connor King, a private practice orthopedic surgeon in Bend, Oregon at the Center for Orthopedics, where everyone is required to have a Subaru, at least one dog, and a garage dedicated to all their Bend toys. So thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm really excited to have this discussion, which is going to be all about the part two board exam. And our two guests today, Connor and Peter, are both in their board collections process at various stages. So we're just going to have a Nice roundtable conversation about what's involved in part two from A to Z. Before we go any further, I just want to let everyone know that the views represented in this podcast do not represent the views of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. This really is just an informal conversation between Jenna and myself, who have passed part two, and Connor and Peter, who are in the process of going through collections. And we hope it's useful, but as an overall caveat for any specific questions, please reach out to the ABOS directly. So we know this can be a really stressful time. So we're hoping to just clarify, kind of give you some advice on things that we found to be useful and to kind of demystify the process. So here's a brief description of what part two of the boards entails. Part one, as you may or may not know, happens the July immediately after you graduate residency for most people. Then you have five years after passing the part one written exam to take and pass part two. This starts with the collections period, during which you log every case you do where you're the primary surgeon, and that usually takes place in your second six months of practice between April 1st and September 30th. You will need to have privileges at a hospital by November 1st, the calendar year before your collections occurs in order to be able to collect. After the collection period ends, again, usually September 30th, you submit your cases, which are usually due by November 1st. Again, Make sure you double check ABOS website and your ABOS contact person for all of these dates. But that's the rough overview of how that collections process goes. So let's dive right in into your burning questions about this first part, part one of part two, make it real confusing. Peter, why don't you tell us where you are in your whole boards process right now? Yeah, thanks, Anna and Jenna, for doing this. I think this will be super helpful for all of our listeners. I know it'll be helpful for me. Uh, so right now we're recording this in June and uh, my board's collection is you know between April and September. So we're kind of right in the middle of my board collection period where I'm collecting all the surgeries that we're doing. So first thing I kind of wanted just to know is you know, how did you guys handle the administrative burden of this and what kind of systems did each of you guys use to help collect uh, and make sure you didn't miss anything? So the first thing I'll say is that I was really paranoid that someone was going to be combing through my list and pointing things out. Like you miss this, you like miss this. The people that sign it are like some administrator in the hospital. I don't think anybody ever looked at it other than me. So yes, you should be careful that you try and include everything. That being said, I wouldn't 
be overly paranoid. No one's going to figure out if you by accident forgot to put something in. In terms of having the person co-sign, this tends to be administrator in the hospital. The best resource is young surgeons a couple years ahead of you. I just asked them, hey, who did you get in touch with? Who signed it? I, at the time, was just operating mainly out of one institution. And so I just had one person sign that list. And it was overall a relatively simple thing to get done. I did have a list on our medical record system on Epic. Like every time I would do a case during collections, I added that case to that Epic list. And I also immediately entered it into the system. And that I think was a good way to just keep track of things as they go, instead of having to remember five months later, how many cases you did and when. Yeah. Also, I kept an ongoing Excel list. If we're talking about just keeping track of every single case as I did it. And then I also had a place in there where I would record complications so that I never had to go back and do it. And I just did it in real time. And that was very helpful for me and something that I still do today to keep track of cases. As you guys are making these lists in real time, what are kind of common mistakes that you think people could make with their lists or things looking back that you wish you had done with the list prior or things that you did with it that you think were super helpful? I think doing it in real time is probably the best thing. The last thing you want to do is get behind and then be like rushing to look back and trying to figure out what cases you did. So I think keeping it in real time is the thing I would recommend. You finish a case, you log those in your either Excel sheet or however you're keeping track, and then it's easy to remember. But I do think the common mistakes is the complications thing that people don't always keep good track of them. So I would say like try and log that real time including small complications that you are like nothing things like small wound complications, just write it down. I would also say I agree with keeping track of things in real time. I think the Excel sheet's a good idea, but I would also highly encourage you to also log it onto the system. So Peter, to answer a little bit more, add to your question a little bit, I'm a little bit further along in the process by a year basically and submitted my list last fall. And I think like Anna has said, I think staying up, up on it the whole time and having it in the system in real time is super helpful. I sort of used my spreadsheet like Jenna had as sort of a backup to make sure that the system was still up to date. It ends up being pretty onerous at both steps in the process when you're getting ready to finalize your list. And then also once you're actually submitting your case files and it ends up taking a lot more time than you think it's going to, even if you've stayed up with it concurrently. And so as much of that that you can do as you're going through, even if you're not necessarily putting in all the complications, but you're saying, oh, you know, this person had a wound problem and you just mark that as a note and you come back later and then you can fill it out more completely. Then it sort of is at least priming some of that stuff and making it so it's a little bit less onerous when it comes to the weeks before you're getting ready to submit your, your case list. Yeah. So in terms of complications, I think this is a good kind of jumping in point. I think this is a part, you know, for people that are starting to collect now, that's just a little bit of a gray area. So can you guys kind of talk about how you thought about complications and what you think, how we should kind of think about complications moving forward in terms of surgical complications, they split it up into surgical anesthetic and medical complications. So things that maybe we don't think about that we should. I think it's a very broad definition and I wouldn't get scared by the amount of complications you have. So like, AKI is a complication. Anemia requiring a transfusion counts as a complication. A wound thing, not even like a big dehiscence, a suture abscess, that would be a complication. So things that you may not think of as a major complication would still count as a complication 
for the purposes of part two. And again, I'm probably going to say this a hundred thousand times. It's very easy to reach out to the ABOS. They're very responsive. So if you're not sure whether something counts or not, just reach out to your contact person at ABOS. Yeah. Like I submitted every little thing as a complication. And one of them that actually got chosen was a rash from the Aquacel dressing that blistered and that, and we didn't go back to the OR. We watched it. It was fine. And uh, it was an easy case to talk about. Yeah. A couple of complications. So one, like somebody has a lateral femicutaneous nerve palsy after a DA hip, you see them, they have some numbness there and you follow them and that goes away. Would you guys consider that a complication? No, that is a very much unknown temporary numbness after anterior hip. If it's something they develop neuralgia parasitica that impacts them in some way, then yes. If it's something that resolves in three to six months, like the vast majority, I would say no. I do want to say this is a complication that can be avoided by using a posterior approach. So you can just sort of file that away for, for the future. Peter, one of the things I found helpful was to actually go through in the system, the ABOS system, and like click on the drop down menu for every single complication and see what they listed as potential things so that, you know, AKI, something I wouldn't necessarily or consider to pay close attention to, I would then see what were the options to then say, oh, yeah, I guess this patient did have a complication by what the ABOS considers as a complication. But I guess the take home message is not just things that require going back to the OR counts as a complication and you should be aware of that and don't feel bad if you have a lot of them. So like later when we start talking about presenting, we'll talk about like the point of the boards is not to divulge your soul to the evaluators, right? But this is the point where you should be divulging things. This is the point where you should just say this happened, this happened, this happened, because this is a better time to tell people than to have them look, looking through your notes and be like, oh, I noticed this was commented, you know, you want it to be coming from you. And you want it to be accurate because I remember this happened to me. One of my cases chosen was a right knee, but I had entered it in the system as a left. And I had to go back and I, you know, I asked, what do I do? I'm freaking out. And I put in the sort of case summary, big bold letters. <laughs> Just so you guys know, this was entered incorrectly as a left. All the documentation is for the right. The consent is for the right. The imaging is for the right. But it's just a lesson to sort of learn from my mistake, I guess. So just double check everything because it's very easy, especially with total joints, to make these kinds of mistakes. Two more questions on complications. One, intraoperatively, you know, I feel like if you have an intraoperative calcar fracture doing a total hip, I feel like that's something I would put down as a complication. Would you guys do that? And the second, intraoperatively, if you're doing a both component revision for a hip and there's a greater trochanteric fracture taking the stem out, would you consider that a complication as well? Yes to both, for sure. Anything that changes your intraoperative management or post-op management is unquestionably a complication. And then the last one would be about arthrofibrosis or stiff knees. So specifically MUAs is on the list that you don't put that down as a case. So if you're taking a patient back for an MUA within 90 days, you wouldn't put that down as another case, but would you put that down as a revisit to the operating room within 90 days under their initially logged case? Yeah, I probably would. I don't think I had any MUAs in my collections, but I would just divulge that. And I think it will be not a big deal. And an easy thing that if that case gets picked, you just read all about MUAs and like the statistics and data around them. So after we put all this in, we put on all our complications, we 
triple and now because Anna made a mistake, we quadruple check to make sure that we put everything <laughs> the correct side. How do we know what cases they're going to pick and what they're going to choose from? Okay. I have a theory. So apparently it's an algorithm, but I think there's a couple things. One is if patients are taken back to the OR multiple times, obviously. And then two, if it's, if it's a CPT code that doesn't appear a lot of other times on your list. Hmm. So if it's something you only did like a one-off ankle fracture, it's probably going to get picked. If you don't do a lot of revisions and you did a revision, I think it's probably going to get picked. So that's just my theory. And then there'll be a couple that you're like, I have no clue why this got picked that are probably just because they were multiply used CPT codes. So I think they're trying to find the most common things you do and then the outliers. That's interesting. Again, theoretical. So I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that in years past, you used to be able to select a couple cases not to present, but that is no longer the case. Correct. You guys, they give you, have you the cases yeah. and those are the ones you present. In terms of, there's obviously a couple forms and things you have patients fill out. Did you guys have the patients fill out, every single patient fill out the approval form to send the ABOS their information or did you wait until they selected your 12 patients and then contacted the, only those patients to have signed the uh, approval form? Is there C, none of the above? So I did not have them do it as they went. And I did not reach out to them after, especially because also during COVID. So those are both good ideas. I did not do either of those. And the consequence of that is a lot of redaction. Yeah, I actually did the same. I also redacted because I just found that to be mentally easier for me. I just did it in like one day. So I think Adobe Acrobat Pro has a really nice, easy redacting where you can like put someone's name and it'll just redact it out. So that was something I did. And I know people who did all of the above, who signed them later, signed them in real time. So I think it's just more mentally what's easier for you. And I, to be honest, didn't feel like explaining to every patient what this meant. So I didn't do it real time because I think it adds a whole nother onerous level of administrative stuff. The one thing that I did try and do real time, Peter, was enroll them in the proms part with the emails. So I feel like for joints, you see them for a pre-op visit in clinic. And so I had my medical assistant on that form that we fill out in clinic, collect their email. So that then as part of the pre-op visit, when I put in their HMP, I would put their email in and put their surgery date in the ABOS system to just like trigger that and start the process. For call stuff, then I tried to sort of do it in real time to collect the email, at least for the proms part. I then brought them all back in, the ones that got selected in the last couple of weeks, basically, and had this really awkward conversation about like what this process is. The first one went something like, hey, I'm not quite yet certified as a surgeon. <laughs> and can you sign this form so that I can use your records in this process? And, and she's like, wait, you're not a real doctor. So kind of learned from that process. Did you do like, but I slept at a holiday. And right, yeah. So I kind of learned from that process. And, and I sort of, you know, I think like Jenna was saying, you know, it's a little, there's obviously sort of a mental taxing part. You know, if you have someone that has a complication and you're bringing them back into clinic and sort of trying to explain this and why their case got picked, you know, that sort of adds some stresses. I, I sort of came around to basically saying, as part of the certification process, ongoing certification process to be an orthopedic surgeon, we have to submit our cases and they're evaluated. And they basically want to make sure that we're doing a good job and taking good care of people. And every patient that I sort of presented it to that way was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Like I'll sign, you can use my records. And so I think it is definitely another step. You know, at that point, you're 
a year and a half into practice and you've got a busy clinic and now you're trying to find a place to put 12 people to sort of have this discussion. But I think doing that, at least for me, was easier than trying to collect them all on the front end. Yeah, I think right now I'm doing it the hard way. I'm literally every single patient that, we, that I sign up for, if I'm doing an on-call case, when I see them in the pre-op area, I'm having them sign that paper, which I kind of combine them both. So it's both the prom and the approval. And for the most part, you said patients are are super open to it and they want to help out however they can. You know, a couple of times, some patients will say, wait a second, like how many of these have you done? So I've gotten that a, a couple of times, but so far it's been it's been okay. So can I add one more thing about case list before we kind of move on from that is about the codes that you submit, the CBT codes in total joints. It's, it's kind of easy, right? We only use one code. I will say that I know some people in other subspecialties that probably the reason they failed was over submitting codes. So I would stay away from submitting extra codes. Like some people will submit codes who are using fluoro for doing navigation, for doing robotic. Mm-hmm. I would try and stay away from submitting any extra codes. It's arthroplasty, you submit one code unless you're doing something really crazy. Remember, really everything is bundled in our cases anyway. So this is the one time where I find that less is more. I don't know if this is how, when you guys were entering it, but now when you type in, you know, 27447 or 27130, it'll give you a drop down on what's your approach, what's your technique, are you using robotics or navigation, manual, what kind of bearing are you using for knees? Are they just collecting that for research for them to know what new people are using or could that possibly be used in the exam? I think that's new. I don't know, Connor, if that was part of yours, but that was not part of Yeah, it was part of ours or the one I submitted too. So check back with me in a couple months. I can tell you whether it came up with the exam. (laughs) (laughs) I think your hunch is right, Peter. I've seen a few studies based on, you know, things reported by ABOS candidates. So I, I think it's probably research. That's my hunch. Yeah. And, and in these, the options are CR, PS and, and medial congruent. Like they completely skip over CS or ultra congruent. Like ABS has already moved on to the future, I guess. <laughs> so what do you put? No, that's a good question. So I put CR, I do a CRCS on almost everybody. And I put CR because it's a CR. It's, a CR femur, it's, it's yeah. not a PS. It's so, but I don't know. So I, I, I <laughs> Yeah, so I sent an email to, you get a, an ABOS person assigned to you. So I sent them an email just kind of flagging that saying, you know, hey, I use a ultra congruent or CS type bearing and that's not an option here. Like, what would you suggest putting? And they said just to put other. Other, okay. So, so I do an other bearing knee. And then the last question is for the PROs. Again, are, are those being used just for our knowledge and feedback or could that possibly be, you know, utilized to count for our candidacy? No one brought it up in my exam. I do think they get that data and they can look through and say like, oh, if you're really an outlier, they may comment on that. Same thing as they get a list of all your complications of even the cases that aren't picked, they have that on a paper. Like you had this many complications, whatever. I had a couple fractures, like intraop, I probably had like three the three that I've ever had are obviously during that period. And that was commented on like, oh, what happened? And I was like, I was in my anterior hip learning curve, you know, and that when we moved on. So they'll know all this stuff, even if they don't comment on it. And finally, anything in terms of board collections that you guys would change knowing what you know now? I mean, it's easy now, right? We're like, oh, we passed high five, you know, <laughs> moved on. But I just think being on top of everything which I think sounds like Anna and I both were because we both have a little bit of OCD, is the best way to go about it. The people that I found that were really stressed were people who were not doing it in real time. 
I go back and forth because on the one hand, I'm like, well, maybe I should have had people sign that form or track them down so I didn't have to redact. But on the other hand, I also really didn't want to do that. So it's just like, when are you going to have the painful time? Are you going to have the painful conversation with and the signing and tracking people down to get them to come in? Or are you going to have the painful sessions, put on some music you like and and go redact stuff? You know, I don't know. It's to <laughs> pick your poison, I guess. I'd rather redact in front of the TV. Yeah, exactly. Every day. Then ha- <laughs> have that conversation like 60 times or whatever. Moving on to the exam itself. Since Anna is kind of a fraud and she never actually sat for the exam and just kind of passed out of thin air. We'll move Wait, on. now I need to disclosure in fast radio words also. I actually did pass the exam, but I was in the COVID 2020 class where a certain portion of applicants were passed based on documentations alone and another portion did like a Zoom version of boards. So, okay. Anyway. So now we're back to everyone picking it in person. So that's really the real stress, right? So once you submit your documentation, then you wait to hear back about the cases that are you're picked and you get ready to sit for your oral exam. So Connor, you're kind of getting, you heard your cases yet or yeah, you just got them probably, right? No, my cases are due on Friday. <laughs> oh, I'll submit. Okay. So tell yeah. us what you've been going through in the past month or so since you got those back. Are you saying that the next part is more stressful than the current? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think I, I think that both parts are stressful. I mean, I think there's there, when you first get your cases, there's an initial thing. I think like Anna and, and Jenna were talking about of why did they pick this case, or I knew they were going to pick this case, and you're kind of reliving the case and the complications, and sort of like looking at all the charting with a fine tooth comb, and why did I say this, or why is my note dictated? You know, there's a voice thing that's slightly wrong or something. And, phrase is wrong. But I think as I sort of sat and simmered on my cases, I think it really comes back to Peter, what you're going through right now. But if you're doing the right thing and taking good care of people, when you go back and look through your documentation for the cases that got picked, at the end of the day, I think you're going to feel comfortable defending all of them. And so I think on the front end, really focusing on having good indications, doing the right thing and taking good care of people and trying to focus on that, then the rest, I think, will sort of come together. It's stressful in that it's a lot of documentation to collect and they have specific ways they want you to name it and upload it. So it all shows up in their system the right way and whether or not you redact it, it's hours and hours of work. And I would plan to have that, whether it's some weekends that are free around the time that your cases are due or even taking a day or two off of clinic, just so you can set aside some time to do it. But honestly, you're in the more stressful part where you have an intraop calcar fracture. And the first thing you think is one, now I got to pass a wire or whatever. And then two, oh man, this is definitely going to get picked. And you know, how am I going to document this and, and all that stuff while you're in the case? And and I think the one nice thing once you get past that is then you can sort of focus on just taking good care of people and not have to worry about, oh, well, what is the board going to think about how I passed the wire or how I did this or whatever? Let's go back a little bit. So Connor, for people who have not gotten to this part yet, will you talk about what happens once you submit your cases, how long you wait, how many cases they pick, and then what kind of information they give back to you? So you submit your cases, I think, in November. Is that right, Peter? Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. finish collecting September 30th, and then you have a couple of weeks to submit them. Yeah. So you submit them in November, and then it's just long enough after you submitted them where you kind of, you don't forget that they're going to give you a list, <laughs> but <laughs> it's long enough that it goes a little bit further into the back of your mind. And then I got my cases about a month ago. So it's, I think, in May late April or May. So several months after you've submitted them. 
And all you get is basically a list of 12 cases with the patient initials and what the case was. And then as you log into the system, you can sort of look back at what the complication was that you logged. And then you at that point have access to the system to start to upload and, and have information about how to upload the cases. So you don't really get a ton in terms of why they picked anything. They just tell you here are the 12 cases that you have to present. When they give you those 12 cases, what information do they ask you to give them for each of the case? For every single case, you're basically supposed to submit a complete medical record. I've got a patient who went through a two-stage revision who had to be washed out where the medical record file is like a 250-page PDF, including all the hospital notes, op notes, ID notes, cultures, and all that stuff. And so they're in the online system, which is not the most technologically advanced, kind of like the one you're using now to submit your cases. There are areas for each surgical case. So if someone has multiple trips to the OR, each one of those cases has a portion where you have to upload the preoperative HMP, the op note, the consent, any post-hospital notes, any post-hospital consults, and then any post-operative clinic follow-up. And then you can also upload radiology report reads for CT scans or MRIs. You can upload lab files and all that kind of stuff. It falls a little bit into a category of, they tell you certain things that you're not supposed to upload. So like physical therapy notes, and there's a couple other things where they give you a very specific list of don't upload these things. But most of it is the things that you would expect. So your progress notes and imaging files and that kind of stuff. And the consent. Did you mention the and consent? And the consent. I did right, mention that. Yeah. yeah. Things to not forget, obviously, the consent. And then things, <laughs> things that people often get confused about, you don't really have to upload every single hospital inpatient note unless there was an event that you want to note. And the other thing, I think you already mentioned this, Connor, but to reiterate, it'll be in the instructions. You have to name these files in a specific way. And that's very important. So just pay attention to that part of it before you upload them. Yeah, because it seems like from what I gathered, because I started to upload them without having fully read the instructions, like, which made a lot of sense. But <laughs> uh, having then gone back and, and fully read the instructions, the, the file name is important because it is sorted per category in the PDF based on the numbers at the end, which have to do with the date. And if there are multiple files from one specific date, how you sort of put those sequentially. So that's how it all ends up in the file that you're going to have when you're sitting for your boards and that the examiners are going to be able to look at. And so I think reading through the instructions before you start to fill it out is probably worthwhile. <laughs> how did you guys prepare? I mean, I am going to talk to some faculty. What would you recommend in terms of how to practice to actually sit for the exam with the examiners? So I was pretty anxious about this because I would knew I was switching jobs. And thus, if I didn't pass, I would have to wait a whole nother year to recollect and retake. So I went above and beyond. I practiced with about everyone that I knew that had done this before. So I practiced with fellowship attendings. I practiced with friends that were a couple of years ahead that had taken it. I practiced with a couple of people in my year. We practiced some of our cases to each other to comment on them. So the more times you can be saying these words out loud, the better. I also did the main review course. I think it was a good thing to do to get me to the mental point that this was a big deal and I was going to really have to practice. I'm kind of like a wing it 
presenter and this was not a wing it situation. So that really helped me realize that. I don't think it's necessary, but I will say that it's something that if you're nervous and you are not the best test taker and you really need some extra help, I think it's it's very helpful. It's just expensive and it's a whole week. There are other courses. AOS has an online review course. I believe that's about a one day course. That's really easy. They let you review a couple cases and you get to listen to people within your category, present some cases. So I think the answer is do something and don't just be saying the words to yourself and definitely don't just be saying them in your head. Another piece of advice that I was given that I never got a chance to actually do was they had recommended what they did was write out their presentation, what they want to say, record themselves saying it and listen to that like a podcast, like listen to it on your way to and from work or whatever. I mean, I don't know how much you can stand to hear the sound of your own voice. For me, that could be infinite. But for other people, maybe you don't want to hear your own voice as much. So uh, I thought that was an interesting idea. I had a couple actually that I was having a hard time synthesizing what I wanted to say in that kind of like short couple minutes that you were trying to put together. So there were a couple of cases that I actually wrote it out and then I said it and recorded it and then listened to it to hear what it said and actually to time it. So not for everyone, but for there was a couple that I just really wanted to make sure I explained what happened. This is the point where I got a lot of advice from senior people not to make this a confessional. <laughs> this is not you spilling all of your dirty secrets. Well, I really could have done this and I think I did this. This is for giving facts about what happened. This is not for you trying to like feel bad and, you know, confess keep it simple, keep it quick, keep it all fact-driven, and they will let them ask you the questions. Don't give them all the information. You also want to leave room for them to have questions for you because you don't want them to start talking about weird stuff, asking you about physics and things like that. I will say, as not so much a counterpoint, but a warning that you don't want to be the opposite, the person who says they did everything right, they would never change anything, and everything they did is great. Because that's also dangerous. From no, not at all. When they ask you, totally say, oh, I would have done this differently. Know for every case what you would have done differently. Have a plan of what you're going to say for every single case of what you would have done differently. That doesn't mean you have to just offer it on a silver platter. Just offer them the facts and let them ask you the questions that are pertinent to them. And in that case summary, Connor, you'll know that, right? Because you've just- Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. So Jenna, how did you manage that part of the case summary where, you know, it says you you sort of write up. So Peter, I didn't mention this, but part of one of the things that you submit for each case, in addition to the file with the medical record is also a case summary, which basically is a brief HPI, a review of radiographic studies, diagnosis, which I have a question about too, which I want to come back to. And then what was the indication for surgery, the surgeries they had, was there a complication? If there was a complication, how did you manage it? And then one of the things it says is, well, was the patient happy? Were you happy? But then what would you do differently uh, in the future? And so in that situation, do you want to, so a couple of those, I've sort of been putting more thoughts about what I would sort of offer on a silver platter, like what you're saying, maybe I shouldn't do, but what are your thoughts about that part of it on the case summary? You want to be thorough. And you want to have something that's meaningful, but you don't want to say, oh, I I would have been a better surgeon, right? You want to say, well, (laughs) now I do a better job 
looking at where I'm going to make my neck cut and making sure my exposure is good. So again, just make it really fact-based. You know, we're orthopedic surgeons. We really like things that are pretty like straightforward. And these are very emotional cases, especially the ones that had complications, but it's emotional to you. It's not emotional to the reviewer. So the more fact-based you can make everything, I think the more successful it is. And in the same way that every case you do, you know, you want to be critical of your x-rays. There's always something to learn. There's always something, you know, it doesn't have to be like a huge thing, but you just think critically about yourself and something you maybe could have done different with the knowledge you have now being further on in practice without, as Jenna said, going too negative about how it all went down. And so just go back, because I had sort of hit on it a little bit, but for the diagnosis section on the case summary, it says differential diagnosis, right? So for a lot of the cases, it's arthritis. So there's not really a differential. (laughs) Did you guys just put that? You know, there's like one case where I have, you know, whether it was neuropathic versus infectious versus arthritic, but the rest are are fairly straightforward. So what are your thoughts about that? Or, you know, do you say, ah, degenerative meniscal tear? Like, what what did you put for that? Arthritis. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. (laughs) Another question I have sort of wrapping up or sort of tying together the case summary, and then also a little bit sitting for the exam itself. One of the piece of advice I got from someone was to sort of come up with like a one-liner or a one sort of paragraph summary of the case where you kind of say, here's what it was, here's what happened, here's what I did. So for example, anterior total arthroplasty for femoral neck fracture, intraop calcar fracture, treated with cerclage wire and cemented femoral component. Like, do you think it's worth delivering all that up front? Or how do you recommend that you sort of initially present the case? Yes. So have your spiel, right? So that's what you're going to be practicing before. So give yourself, you know, I can't even remember how long they said to us, like maybe three minutes, you know, this is a 76 year old female who presented to my clinic with hip pain. Pain was in her groin. She had done physical therapy, injections, anti-inflammatories. I took x-rays, two views and found that she had severe osteoarthritis, you know, like have it in a stepwise and they will stop you to ask you questions at point. But the more you can go, the more time you can take up in that case of them listening to your spiel, the better. But make it about, I think, about three minutes and really practice that, keeping it concise, but giving all the important information. Yeah, like if someone came had an infection and they have diabetes, I want to put that they have diabetes on insulin, relatively well-controlled or something like that. Like that's part of your talk. So you want them to know that because you just told me you're giving them 200 pages per patient. Like no one is going to read all that. Another question I had about the exam itself, you know, the ABS talks a lot about the rubric and how much did you look over the rubric and try and sort of hit the points of the rubric with your summary as you're describing the case? Because I've heard sometimes that people fail, not necessarily because they didn't do the right thing or they didn't have the documentation to support it. But if they didn't discuss a certain point on the rubric, they don't get credit for that. So I will say I did not do a good job reviewing that. It was not something I was really aware of until I was pretty far along. And when I went back to look, I felt like I was doing most of it anyway. One of someone that I know who failed the first time, what they were retaking it. And the second time they really paid attention to the rubric, including putting like prom scores in their presentation to prove that like patients got better or things like that. So the answer is, I don't know you know, you could, it's probably something good to just be aware that it exists and know how you're being graded. It's probably a little bit above and beyond to be doing like adding those kind of prom scores and things like that to prove that you're using like 
because there's something that says using like patient reported outcomes or like outcome based measures to assess patients. And so there's only one way to do that. So I think in arthroplasty, the graders are pretty reasonable. So I think that keeping it straightforward is probably best. Jenna, can you tell us a little bit about what the experience is like in Chicago for the exam itself? Yeah, so it's it's a pretty stressful experience. You obviously get, you know, around this time, you get the day and the time that you're doing the exam. So it's over a few days and there's a different session throughout the day. Um, so you go there, you kind of assemble in a room in the morning. They assign you to different sections. They tell you that if there's anyone that you know personally, either someone that trained you or that you know personally from something else, that you need to disclose this and they need to recuse themselves from your exam. And then when you go and sit down, it's usually two reviewers per case and you kind of sit in your spot and they file in and out and kind of come to you and they have a computer that has all the information on it and on a screen where they can project the images as they're asking you questions and it's pretty direct timed. There's a mixture of how people handle this, right? Some are nice and normal and treat you like a human. And some people take this as like their chance to like test people and see if they can make them cry. And, you know, those are probably the people that are grading nicer, to be honest. In terms of the questions that they ask you, it can be everything. And this is the hardest thing to prepare for. I mean, they can ask you about what the theoretical way that a nail works, you know, in a hip fracture. They'll ask you about load bearing versus load sharing. They'll ask you about what the data says about doing uncemented hemis and hip fracture patients, you know, like you, if you did it, you better have a good reason why. So you really want to know the data surrounding your complications, most of all, but also the implants that you're using. What's the survivorship of your implants? What is the most common complications of primary knee replacement, primary hip replacement? So that's kind of like what I found to be the stressful part is you don't know what they're going to ask. And there were some things I didn't not know the answer to. And I just had to say, I don't know. So just know your cases really well, and especially know the data surrounding your complications really well. And then you go home, you cry a little bit, and then you wait to find out if you passed. Peter, are you stressed now? <laughs> uh, ever since I stopped asking questions and you guys started talking about the second part, my hands are clammy, my heart rate's up. <laughs> yeah, I, I was super stressed. I will say, like, first of all, to everyone in boards collection, it's terrible. Like, you're not the only one that is stressed at work and no longer thinks it's fun to be at work. Like, you're not the only one because it stinks that you're not even worrying about patients anymore. You're worrying about submitting things to the boards. So it's going to be over, but it stinks. So you're not alone in that. And number two is just like, if you're doing a good job, it's probably going to be fine. There's very few people I know that failed who were doing a good job. And just be thorough in your documentation and write out your thinking. That'll help you later too. Like maybe, maybe you're not big into long notes, but for this period of collections, take time in your notes to, to write out why you made this decision and your reasoning behind it. You don't have to put papers or whatever in your note, but I think that will help you as well to show that you're thinking about things and you or you've discussed them with colleagues or you have a rationale. Yeah, that's a big one too. You're right, Anna. So like if you're doing something weird or it's a weird case, I always wrote like I discussed with Anna Cohen Rosenblum, MD, associate professor at LSU. <laughs> and she agreed with my plan. No, seriously, I wrote, or I discussed with senior partners. I would just say like, this is nerve wracking. It's not fun. It really stings. And just know that you're not the only one that feels that way. 
it's really everyone. And probably people practice a lot less than I did because I was above and beyond anxious for this because of switching jobs. Just practice, you know, just say it out loud. Peter, I felt like I collected my cases and I submitted them. And when I submitted it, it was like, okay, I, I, I got my cases in and I think things are going well. And then you go through like three or six months where you're not collecting, you're just taking care of people. And you're like, oh, I'm hitting my stride. Like things are going well. And then they deliver you. And you're like, <laughs> oh man, like it's, it's like they're trying to mess with your head to like bring you back down and make you feel like you don't know what you're doing anymore because of, you've been like in practice and, and sort of doing everything. So when you get your case list, there's going to be a couple of days where you're like doubt everything again, the way you're doubting it right now when you're in, like in your case submission period. And I commiserated with my co-fellows and co-residents who are at the same, same stage. And uh, I think, again, that gets back to the other point I made about take good care of people and document well. And then as you know, then you, you have this like, Oh man moment. And then as you look through your chart, you're like, yeah, this was not a great thing that happened, but I took good care of the patient. I did the right thing. And my documentation supports all of that. And I think that at least for me, made me feel better and brought my stress down a little bit as now I'm submitting all the cases. Thank you so much to young arthroplasty group committee members, Peter Gold and Connor King for joining us. You can find information for how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at aahks.org and follow us on Twitter. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.